This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com. In today's dynamic retail landscape, tracking openings and closings before they take place has never been more important. Having this intelligence is an undeniable competitive advantage. RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com, also known as ROCK, tracks future openings and future closings. Comprehensive, accurate, and reliable, the ROCK is your crystal ball and the key to making well-informed decisions with confidence in today's evolving retail climate. So I appreciate it. So, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are, your your kind of career trajectory, and uh, what Capriati's is doing these days? You know, just without uh, giving all the boring details, I grew up in the restaurant business in New York and attended uh, hotel and restaurant school out in uh, Vegas and then went to work for Norman Brinker, who sort of invented the national restaurant scene, Steak and Al, Bennigan's. Uh, I was a young kid and got to run my own restaurants all over the country for a number of years and really learn how to run you know, a business from a professional standpoint. Um, and then got into the hotel side of food and beverage for about 10 years, working for a company out of London called the Rank Organization. So I got to do some real, got to do my own concepts, but um, years and years ago, got involved as a franchisee Really got a chance uh, with Quiznos to grow a brand from a very small, you know, Denver-based brand um, at 18 restaurants, uh, became part of the uh, leadership team there and was one of the largest franchisees and um, left the brand when it was sold to J.P. Morgan. We were at 5,000 restaurants in 28 countries when I left. So really learned how to grow a brand at scale and then have had the opportunity to do that. A number of other times um, have worked in about 33 countries today, growing brands. And today, I'm the chief development and operating officer for Capriati's. We are based in Vegas. We've got about 100 change restaurants open. We've got another 200 restaurants in the uh, development pipeline today. So we're obviously on that, you know, accelerated growth curve that um, brands go, go through, hopefully. Brands like to go through. Um, so, you know, this is a really fun time. And, and you know, even though this is a weird time, we're continuing on that trajectory. So that's a little background. So for those who don't know, you know, what is Capriati's? Capriati's started as an Italian deli in the little, little Italy section of Delaware. Uh, what sets us apart is really we... You know, we're one of the largest buyers of butter, whole butterball turkeys in the world. We roast whole butterball turkeys in our restaurants every single night. Uh, butterball raises a line of turkeys for us called the Capriati's Supercom. We roast our own roast beef. We roll our own meatballs. We're making our stuffing. and our We're making everything in-house. 
So it's sort of a high-end uh, sub-sandwich concept. Uh, we were named uh, the Bobby, our turkey sub Thanksgiving sandwich was named greatest sandwich in America. We win, you know, best sandwich, whether it's our cheese steaks or our capistrami or a Bobby, we win best sandwich in virtually every city we go to. We tend to have much higher average unit volumes, I'd say, than, you know, a normal sub shop. Our average is well north of 750, with the top 25% of the brand being at a million two. Um, so high end, you know, high volume sub sandwich concept. Wow. And so, and how big are these uh, shops? You know, it's interesting. Uh, and I'll tell, tell us, you know, they, we started out as relatively small footprints, probably for the Capriati's, by the way, has been around for 40 years. So we just started going national a few years ago. If you go back and look at the early vintages, the shops were very small, almost no seating whatsoever, almost all carry out and to go. And then over the years, the shops, like a lot of brands, got larger and larger, and they peaked at about 2,000 square feet. Um, but about two or three years ago, we started shrinking that footprint. So today, you know, on average, we're about 1,400, 1,500 square feet. Got it. And, and, and what type of real estate are, are you guys – Freestanding buildings in shopping centers and downtowns. What do you, what, what, where do you guys excel? Yeah. Like I think a lot of people in our category, the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, we do freestanding buildings with pickup windows. We're in CB central business districts. We're in residential areas. You know, again, we're sort of a high end sub shop. So it's more driven by, you know, densities, uh, demographics, you know, discretionary spending, traffic, you know, the perfect restaurant for us is going to have, you know, high density daytime and nighttime seven days a week so that we can do a strong lunch and a strong dinner business. Um, that's, that's the optimal situation for us. Interesting. And so you're, tar- you're starting to go national and you started out in, on, in Vegas? We started in Delaware. And, oh, Delaware. Okay. Yes, and existed in Delaware for probably a decade and a decade and a half before. Um, the owners just like to go to Vegas a lot, candidly. And uh, so they, they decided to open up some shops in Vegas. So the brand existed for probably 20 to 30 years in just Delaware and Vegas, just in those two markets. Um, so, um, you know, kind of East Coast, West Coast, a little of both. Today, as I said, we're in over 20 markets. We've got another 28 new markets represented in that 200 restaurants in our pipeline today. So we're entering new markets at a very rapid clip. You know, are these all over the country or different MSAs? Is there a geographic strategy or is it franchise, you know, where the franchisees are? What's driving it? Yeah, it's really more where the opportunity is. Um, so we're from Boston to, you know, to San Francisco and everywhere virtually in between. Um, and if we're not open, we're in the throes of opening in, you know, most states. Um, and so it really is, have, it's driven by having the right franchise partner versus us targeting a, a given geographic area. A- any markets that you're really excited about from a geography place? You know, it's always great to build up uh, density or core, you know, um, volumes in a market so we can start to build advertising co-ops and really optimize supply chain and things like that. Uh, but some of our highest volume, mar- you know, markets are places like South Dakota, 
places that you you wouldn't think um, that we're going to you know kill it. Um, you know, and I and I think it's different reasons in different markets. Some areas like Sioux Falls, South Dakota may just be underserved compared to you know Dallas, Texas. Um, but that at the end of the day, there we tend to do very very well in, in those markets as long as we do a great job. You know, picking our real estate, picking our franchise partner, and being yeah. committed, and being committed to uh, to marketing on a long term basis. Are you? And do you guys like second generation restaurants or do you want to start from scratch? It's, uh, you know, it's sort of six and one half dozen for us, you know, advantages to both. I think, you know, certainly it's nice to get second generation space when it lays out perfectly and it's, you know, the conditions are right, but otherwise we're fine with, uh, with new space. Got it. So, you know, you mentioned before that you guys grew in size as restaurants do, and you mentioned seating, and we're in an interesting time. You know, how has Capriati's done through COVID-19? You know, we haven't publicized this because it's, it feels a little weird too, but we're literally, 2019 was a record year for, for us in terms of sales growth and expansion of the brand. And to date, 2020 is actually double digit above that. Um, so we are probably not, you know, as, as good as the, you know, dominoes of the world. Um, but pretty close behind that we, we have a very, very, and we have had a very strong off premise, uh, business for the last several years and had invested very heavily in that. And that's really paid off. So are you doing takeout or are you doing delivery, both takeout delivery, continuing to do some catering, even though that has shrunk down quite a bit. So we have national deals with all the major aggregators, Grubhub, DoorDash, Postmates, Uber Eats. We have some unique relationships with companies like Fuda and DeNova. We have our own Cap Addicts app um, that we work with uh, Olo and DoorDash on. Tremendous amount of pickup and delivery um, business. As, but as I said, that's kind of how the brand started. Our sandwiches are very portable. You know, they really hold up well. I think there's people that would argue they're better a half hour after they're made than they yeah. are the minute they're made. So, you know, I think our food lends itself really well to what's been going on, but it's also, we had invested years and a tremendous amount of time and energy into optimizing our presence on all those platforms and really figuring out how to make it work well. Um, and, and that's just paid off. Yeah. I, I had a, uh, I had James Walker, the CDO of uh, Nathan's on, um, Nathan's yeah. And he, he, he has a view that this and, you know, really was good for comfort food. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, and I think that's probably right. And, you know, I'm working out a lot, but I definitely enjoy my comfort food here at home when you're stuck at home, no doubt. So I can imagine, uh, that, you know, one of the things I, I I'm sure you saw in New York city and, you know, you being from Yonkers, uh, you know, the, the restrictions they put on delivery fees. Yeah. You know, a lo- go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just gonna say, you know, a lot of, you know, restaurants and I guess a lot of local restaurants have really been crying wolf from the fees of delivery. And I get what, you know, you mentioned your partners with Grubhub door to everybody. How, how are you navigating that? And is that just scale? It's scale. 
Um, it's, you know, we, we negotiate our fees every year. Um, you know, you get a company like Taco Bell that buys into a, an aggregator and just buys the fee down. Um, so it's not necessarily an even playing field, but it's also knowing how to optimize your presence and your pricing on those aggregators. And our experience is um, that consumers that want access and are married to Grubhub or Postmates or whatever, DoorDash, whatever platform that, that they utilize are not price sensitive. They're much more convenience oriented. And if, they, if you have a great product that people are willing to pay a fair price for, you're gonna do really well. Um, if you're price driven, say like the Taco Bell or McDonald's or what have you, you might not do as well um, on those sites. So I, I think there's, it's a combination of things. I'm not a fan of government intervention and in pricing. Um, I, I tend to think that the marketplace does that much more effectively and much on a much more timely basis. Um, but we are certainly seeing some of that in like LA, San Francisco, New York, places like that. Yeah. I, I, I like to test things out as new technologies come out. I try to, you know, given that I'm in the retail real estate business, I, I, I try to test them out and from a consumer perspective. And so I, it's a great point that if you're, if you're in DoorDash or Grubhub, you're probably less price sensitive. Um, I, I think that is different though than uh, Instacart, which I think there's people looking for delivery of groceries that are price sensitive. And I, I think that's, you know, getting challenging uh, on the, we've tried, I, you know, when Alexa came out, I was trying things on Alexa and, you know, Google home and trying to, you know, get firsthand tasting from a consumer perspective. And my wife and I ordered a chocolate milkshake from McDonald's through DoorDash, just one milkshake to see how the experience was, how it would hold up and, um, you know, what the pricing would be. It was the most expensive milkshake that I've ever gotten. I wouldn't do that again. But um, I, 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 your point's well taken and probably something that I don't think everyone thinks about is that those people are probably less price sensitive and they're more convenience driven. So that's a great point. Yeah. And some products just don't travel very well. You know, I don't, yeah. I don't happen to think hamburgers, French fries and tacos travel really well. Um, and some products, pizza, you know, subs, sandwiches and things like that, they travel really well. And I think consumers inherently know that. Um, yeah. And so they, whether they're thinking, you know, really cognitively through this process, when you're ordering at home, you're kind of like, what sounds good? And what, and you know, in the back of your mind, what's going to arrive in good shape and what, you know, like a, a, a milkshake, you're kind of like, yeah, it's a hundred degrees out. I'm not sure that's going to do so well, you know, by the time it gets here. And you know, most consumers know that. So you, you, you guys have, you know, navigated COVID better than most. Uh, but you're still going to have to deal with, you know, you, and I mentioned before, and I, I kind of skipped around the reduced occupancy and mm -hmm. seating. You grew size of footprint and added seating. And now that's challenged. How, how are you guys thinking about that? You know, we're sticking to our 14, 1500 square foot model because we find that's optimal from an operating standpoint. It provides enough seats to service guests. Um, but given the fact that so much of our business has moved off premise, 
Um, and we continue to see that trend going on even as, as dining rooms are reopening. Um, we, you know, we have seen, even as dining rooms reopen, uh, people coming in and sitting down, but we, we think that this trend of off-premise is just going to accelerate, if anything. Um, but having bricks and mortar locations that represent the brand are convenient to consumers um, and are located where they you know, want you to be, when they want you to be there, is, is an important part of our brand. And so that, that part of the business is not going away. We're certainly investigating you know, things like ghost kitchens and virtual kitchens and things like that um, in, in a number of markets and have national agreements with all of those guys as well. So, but we see that as being supplemental to our retail business. How long does it take to get the dining room business back to where it was pre-COVID? You know, I've read a lot about this and we're very involved with the International Franchise Association. One of our board members is past chairman and uh, another board member was past chairwoman. And um, we're, you know, they have equity and things like Domino's China. And so we see a lot of advanced data. And I will just say that all the data that I've seen says it's very market-specific and sort of geopolitically driven. So if you live yeah. in New York City, you know, half of the people that live in New York City know somebody that's contracted COVID. You go to Pittsburgh, only 13% of the people know somebody that's contracted COVID. And so the sensitivity around the pandemic and what and their behaviors, their consumers' you know, behavior, uh, driven by sort of how they see the world and you know, what they're you know, what their region looks like, what their politics look, what their socioeconomic background looks like is really driving um, their behavior much, much more than governments opening and closing, you know, uh, dining rooms. Here in Vegas, for instance, dining rooms were allowed to open weeks ago and the company shops that we own and operate ourselves, we still haven't opened our dining rooms yet and our revenues continue to climb. some people, you know, that are strictly, you know, dining room, you know, oriented, full service restaurants per se, um, opened up as soon as they could. So I think it's brand specific and it's also regional um, in terms of consumer behavior. It's great insights. Um, that data that you talked about, the 13% and the 50% in New York, that's interesting. I hadn't heard that yet. What haven't we talked about that, you know, is top of is top of mind for you? You know, I think number one, my experience is um, the team you work with is the most important thing. Um, having great people that are committed long term at every level of the organization really is what will determine whether you're going to get there or not. So, from a board, you know, investor level, board members, senior leadership team, management team all the way down the line, franchise partners, their employees, having alignment on mission and purpose and values um, means more today than ever before. Um, And I think candidly is the reason a lot of brands, um, you know, achieve their goals and some brands don't achieve their goals. It's not that they don't have a great product or they don't have, you know, a, a really good brand. It's they don't have alignment and a really strong, management team, you know, from top to bottom, again, investors all the way down to the people working in the restaurants day in and day out. And that today takes a tremendous amount of time and energy and commitment to make happen. It doesn't just happen. 
And then secondly, I just say that the adoption of technology, the understanding, the adoption and integration of technology, all of the technologies that are that, that have been coming at us from the last few years, um, that adoption rate by consumers is only going to accelerate um, going forward. You know, this crisis and pandemic has clearly taught people you don't have to leave your home to go to work. You don't have to leave your home to go shopping or to have food brought in. And people place a premium on convenience and, and their time um, and are willing to, you know, to pay for that. So if you can you know, work with those things and, and make sure your product and your offerings and your marketing and sort of the consumer experience works well with that, then you're probably going to do really well. If you're not, if your management team and your product and your offerings not aligned with that, and there are a lot of brands out there today that are not at all aligned with that, you're going to have a very, very rough ride. Yeah, that's great perspective. Really, really interesting stuff. One more question. What question are, are you, you know, as we come out of this, what question is, you know, burning inside you that you're dying to have answered? What are you, what are you very curious as to what happens as the pandemic settles and reopening happens? You know, I think the, the question short term, I, I think in terms of, you know, short and long term in the short term, you know, we don't know what's, what shoe is going to drop next. Um, and so we, we have to do a lot of scenario planning um, in preparation for everything. You know, we, when this crisis started, we literally had to say, what happens if we lose 100% of our revenue? What does our cash burn look like? And how do we make sure we're going to be in business 18 months from now? Um, and then obviously we, we've done a whole lot better than that. But you've got to really look at every single scenario and make sure you have a plan for it. Um, and so we do spend a lot of time, but even with all that planning and even all that time and energy, you know, we don't know what's going to happen tonight. Um, and so that I'd love to know. <laughs> I'd love to know what was going to happen tonight. Never mind tomorrow. I don't even know tonight. And so, you know, we're, we're having to really be very, very nimble and, and stick to our core values and let that be our guiding light um, in terms of how we react to things or go through things. In the longer term, um, I would say that the integration of all of the technologies, and, and I, we work really, really closely with, a, you know, Uber, with the ghost kitchen guys, you know, and there's, there's three main ones out there today that all have slightly business, different business models. And then we work with really, really closely with a lot of the technology platforms like Olo, but also the people developing robotics and sensors and, you know, face, facial recognition and facial payment. Um, all those, you know, all those technologies that are coming together and, and called the next five to 10 years, what's that really going to look like at the end of the day? And how does that impact our decisions around things like real estate? where to put restaurants, you know, where to put ghost kitchens, where, what kind of virtual brands to launch? How do we think about mobile kitchens, which is a whole nother piece of the business? Um, you know, how's that all going to work together? How does that sort of roadmap? And, and uh, we're spending a tremendous amount of time and energy thinking about that. And, uh, you know, clearly we don't have all the answers, but once again, we're kind of, we're testing, we're kind of using the technology roadmap, which is, you know, Fail forward fast and iterate. 
Um, and we find that that, you know, that technology way of thinking about things in the restaurant industry is probably a little bit new for restaurant tours, um, but it is sort of key to success in the future. Got it. Um, the, you mentioned the, the, you know, who do you think that the three top ghost kitchen players are? Well, they're clear. I mean, cloud kitchens, which is backed by uh, Travis Kalanick, Uber, founder of Uber. Yep. Um, kitchen United, which is backed, started by John Miller, who's a genius, um, but backed by uh, Google Ventures and Reef Technologies, which is, I think, today the largest private network of uh, real estate in the United States. I've got, you know, management or ownership of 5,000 parking garages in the country. Yeah. And, uh, and you, you mentioned a topic I haven't heard of much about, but I've read a little bit about, which is mobile kitchens. Yeah. There's a, con- a company called Zoom. Um, another friend, Alex Gardner, has uh, tested it with a concept called Z Pizza. Um, but, you know, having mobile kitchens, not food trucks, mobile kitchens that are fully integrated from a technology standpoint. So the Uber Eats and DoorDashes and Grubhubs of the world can literally go to that kitchen, but they can, they can place those trucks and know where to place those food trucks right next to the consumer based on time of day. So when you look at like real estate mapping, the typical real estate mapping programs or platforms, whether it's SiteZeus or whoever else you use, these guys have real-time data, like real-time cellular traffic. And they can tell you, you should park this truck at such and such a place based on you know, real-time revenues, real-time traffic, real-time densities, things like that. And, you know, you can now leverage um, your bricks and mortar locations, not just as restaurants, but also as commissaries for the, and ghost kitchens for that matter, as commissaries for these mobile kitchen platforms. Um, so being close to consumer and being able to provide that sort of last mile delivery is going to be a, a piece of the pie as well. Fascinating. Uh, really fascinating. Uh, all right. So I, I want to pivot a second to, uh, you have a story about an, an interesting, uh, Capriati's that you guys worked on that opened up in a, in a certain spot. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, my favorite stories are the ones that you don't expect to be home runs and turn out to be home runs. Yeah. That's always the best surprise, right? Um, so I think, you know, when it's sort of the inside deal, you know, it's, I'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this podcast do site tours with, you know, prospective owners and operators all the time, and they're looking for a space that's available. And you're always telling people, look, the, you know, often the best deals are not obvious when you're driving down the street, right? It's having the, the relationship with the right people that are in the deal flow and know what's going on and know what's coming up. And so, you know, when, you, when, the, when you've got that kind of a relationship with a great real estate rep in the market and, and maybe they represent Chipotle and, and uh, Starbucks and all the other big players in the market, and they can tell you, hey, yeah, that Starbucks down the street is moving. Um, they're building a freestanding building across the street. And so that space is going to be, you know, become available. Landlord doesn't even know it yet. I know the landlord, I'll put you, you know, in the deal flow. And if you guys want it, let's ink that deal. And, you know, that's hap- that happens a lot. Um, 
you know, where it's, it's really about relationships um, as much as it is about the data analytics and all those kind of things and negotiations. And so, you know, without pointing to specific deals, that happens to us in virtually every market in the country. It's making sure that we have the right relationships and communication and, and really working relationship with the right people that know the market or, you know, have a lot of that, you know, boots on the ground expertise, but also they're in the deal flow. They have great reputations. They know what's going on. Um, the landlords respect them. So when they bring Capriotis, which is a brand they've never heard before, um, to the table, that gives us a lot of credibility. And then obviously we do a whole introduction. So those are my favorite kind of deals is where we, you know, they're not obvious. We're, we're kind of digging to find the, the best opportunity and that, and they turn out, you know, to be home run. Is, is there one that you didn't think was going to be a home run that turned into a home run? That you- yeah, Sioux, Sioux Falls, I, you know, uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Like, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So how, how did you guys end up choosing that you, uh, you know, originally that you wanted to be in Sioux Falls? We didn't. Uh, <laughs> you know, prospective franchisee. A lot of people come to Capriati's because they've tried the food. They know the food or somebody said something to them about the food. Um, you know, it's always been sort of this cult following. And so we get a lot of, and, and we're based in Vegas. We have over 40 restaurants in Vegas. We're in casinos and, you know, we're in T-Mobile and we'll be in the Raiders stadium with the baseball, you know, so we're all in all these venues. And so people, you know, come across us and they're like, holy moly, this food is incredible. How do I bring this back? And so that's been a big driver of our growth. That's how we ended up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. People, the guys love the food. And they said, hey, I want to do this. And uh, the, one of the guys was actually in the development, but real estate and construction development business and got his wife into it and said, hey, we think you guys do great up there. We go up there and we look at the market and we do all our you know, analytics and analysis and find it's good. Um, but again, you're kind of like, I have no idea how we're going to do it in Sioux Falls. I've never really spent any time there. Um, and then it comes out to be you know, million dollar plus store day one. Um, and their biggest problem is, is handling all the business they have with no marketing. Um, that's always, that's always nice. And so when so the franchisee comes to you and, and you guys go to Sioux Falls and you know, you're, you wasn't, you know, one of the, the top 20 MSAs that you were targeting and you end up there. The, is it the same? real estate process where you, did you go through the same process that you normally would? You guys went and tried to find the best real estate in the market. Yep. Our process is pretty in depth and we have an executive team that has to review and approve every single site, which includes the CEO, the president, myself and our VP of real estate. And there's a very uh, comprehensive site package that has to be um, submitted by both the real estate team and the franchisee that includes all of the financial projections, three-year financial modeling, layouts, costs, you know, construction estimates, you know, all the mapping, all the heat mapping, competitive analysis, um, you know, site, you know, site plans, site surveys, um, everything that you could think of goes into a site package. Um, and every single site we do has that. We find there are probably, I'd say, 
from a revenue projection standpoint within 80 to 90% accurate now. Um, and we know what the cost basis is because we're in enough different states to have some idea what new markets versus you know, existing markets look like from a distribution standpoint. Uh, we know what our operating costs should be. And so we have pretty accurate, this is what the ROI should look like. And we, and we live and die by that, that model. I think a lot of brands kind of get enamored of what they would call flagship locations and home run sites and, you know, kind of rationalize why they can pay double or triple what they normally pay or what have you. We don't do that. We just look at everything from our ROI analysis. We make sure that long-term we keep a cap on our construction or capital costs. Um, And we really, because we own and operate Capriati's restaurants ourselves, we keep a very, very close eye on things like cost of goods and labor and things like that uh, to make sure that, you know, we know what the real operating expenses are um, day in and day out. And that's how we run the brand. And so you run the model for Sioux Falls and, you know, it's going to be a, a decent performer, but certainly not you know, what you're thinking of a home run. What, what, what do you think happened here with this deal that turned it into a home run? I think great locations. I mean, they're always, the success points and the failure points are, you know, usually the same. It's just, which way did it go? Great location. Um, you know, that was really well built out, really good visibility, great, you know, really good looking store. That's really well operated from day one. That's committed long-term to marketing and building a brand in their area. Those are the three elements that have to happen for us to achieve what you would call a home run. If we miss on two of those, we're still usually pretty good. If we pick a good location and um, we operate it well, but they don't do a lot of marketing that are just not really, you know, oriented that way, that store is still pretty, going to probably still do pretty well. But if we pick a bad location and don't operate it well, we're dead. Um, when your entire brand is built on having the kind of food you can't get anyplace else. If we have a bad location and then don't deliver that, then we're going to be in trouble. Um, so that, that's kind of how we look at it. Those are the three real pain points or critical points for determining our success and what it's probably going to really be. So, you know, a performer model might say, hey, you're going to do, you know, 15 grand a week or 18 grand a week. And you come out of the box, you know, day one, and you're doing 30 grand a week. That means you probably picked a really good location. Um, and then as long as you can execute well, and, and we spend a lot of time and energy and money on training and supporting new openings, if the first guests that come in are get that food the right way and the service the way it's supposed to be delivered, they're probably coming back and they're probably bringing a friend. And that, that business is off to a good start. And we don't even begin marketing for a few months because we, you know, we're just really trying to handle the business that's walking in the door. And, get the crew and the management team to settle down a little bit. Um, but if you open the doors day one and there's nobody coming in, you know, you picked a bad location and you know, you got a problem and you really have to address it. So location, operational excellence and marketing. Those are the, the three ones. Yeah. And I think probably for, for the vast majority of brands, those are the three you know, deal, make or break kind of points um, that determine success or, you know, level of success, I'll call. Um, and, and how many stores are corporate owned versus franchise? 
Uh, we've got 105 shops open today and 13 are company owned. We'll, we tend to own and operate stores in, a, around, in and around Vegas or, um, or in markets where we want to test something out, like we're about to open two ghost kitchens, maybe three actually in the LA area. We tend to, when it comes to product or technology platforms or, or like freestanding buildings with drive-throughs, we tend to do those corporately ourselves and kind of figure it out before we pass it along to the franchisee as an opportunity that they think they should pursue. So um, we'll continue, and we tend to do a lot of the sort of non-traditional locations ourselves, like ballparks and stadiums and things like that, um, just because they're, they're, they're unique. Um, but that's, that's kind of our, our corporate versus franchise plan. And the, are the franchisees, do they, are they typically one store owners, multiple store owners? Yeah, no, we don't really ever have one store. I think we have one in the last three years, we've had one person start with one shop. Most of them start with between three to five. And we have people, you know, last year, Bill Bird, who's, uh, was named by the multi-unit franchise conference um, as the multi-unit, multi-brand franchisee of the year as one of our franchisees. So some of our franchisees are multi-unit owners with other concepts, and some are just multi-unit owners with us. Um, but they, you know, anywhere from three, five, 10, 15 is the highest. Um, and so it, it, we built a system, we built a platform in advance um, for multi-unit owners. So their technology, you know, insights and ability to run the business remotely if they want and really get real-time data and insights is a big key to our, our growth, ability to grow and support that growth in advance of it actually happening. And do, and, and are these, are these owners in, in the stores a lot? Are they doing other things? You know, if you have 15, obviously, you might be a multi-unit owner of, you know, Capriati's, Taco Bell's, other things like that. But, you know, the, are, are a lot of these guys in, in, the, in the stores often? Um, I would say they're either in the stores or they have really good directors of operation that they depend on that are in the stores all the time. Um, so, obviously, you know, when they're first starting out, they may be in the stores and we want them to come to training as franchisees. Um, but they're not, they may not be in the stores um, themselves all the time, but they keep a very, very close tab on what ha what's happening in those shops. Um, we're starting to get some franchisees that are opening in multiple markets. You know, maybe there's no more opportunity here in Vegas and they want to go to Chicago or Salt Lake City or Arizona or something like that. So we're starting to get a little bit of that as well, um, which will be sort of our next, you know, I guess, growth curve is franchisees that have no more opportunity in their existing markets, and they, so they want to go to another market. Uh, but they're, whether they're in the stores or not, they're deeply involved in the business. And that's restaurants is a tight margin business, and it's gotten tighter and tighter over the years. So people that you know, are acutely aware of what's going on day in and day out are the ones that do the best. Fascinating. Well, uh, this has been uh, really interesting. I'm excited for Capriati's. Um, and, you know, next time I'm in Delaware, I'm definitely stopping at Capriati's. Uh, and as you make your way up into my neighborhood, uh, I am looking forward to it. Um, so 
Uh, last part of our, our, our show is called Retail Wisdom. And we talked about it earlier. You know the questions, but here they go. You ready? Sure. Best piece of commercial real estate advice? I think commercial real estate is 50% art and 50% science. And the art side is really experience and relationships and depending on people on the ground that know what they're talking about. And the, and the science side is really the data analytics and having a deep, clear understanding of what you're getting into and what that looks like from a financial modeling standpoint and really kind of balancing those two to make a good decision. I agree. That's uh, that is um, great advice. Number two, extinct retailer that <laughs> you wish would come back from the dead. That's a tough one for me. I'm not a look backwards guy. You know, Brent, I've been in the business for a long time, and I would just anybody that's been in the business for a long time has seen a lot of great brands come and go. And I worked for Bennigan's, you know, as a kid growing up, and they were literally like a license to print money when we were first starting out. And today, if you talk to people about Bennigan's, they don't, you know, lots of people have never been to one, right? So it was great to be there. It was a great experience. I learned a lot. I loved the people I got to work with. And, um, but I don't wish that they'd come back. I just, you know, their time is, you know, kind of done. Um, and so I kind of think um, I, I tend to spend like 100% of my time looking forward. I'd say, if anything, I wish you could still sit at like a Walgreens counter um, like I did in New York growing up and get a soda and, you know, something like that with the waitress behind the, the counter. I think those days were kind of the soda jerk days were kind of cool, but I'm not sure I'd ever actually do that. So um, that's about Very it. Good. Last question. So you're a, uh, a high volume uh restaurant chain better than average for sure and so i'll bring you to one of the highest per square square foot volume retailers on the planet and that is lululemon Mm -hmm. i am on lulu's website and i am looking at their men's abc jogger pants which if you ever saw me you'd know i never wore (laughs) what what do they retail for david a hundred bucks. You're, you're close. $128, but thank you for playing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I do know Lululemon. I do have a family that's in great shape, uh, <laughs> including me. Well, listen, I, David, really appreciate you coming on. If there's anything I can do for you, don't hesitate to ask. You know, I'm hoping we can, can stay connected, catch up here and there, and hopefully, um, you know, when uh, all the dust settles, we'll see each other in person. I appreciate it from you. I look forward to getting together at some point. Thanks. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you are a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.